I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. And this week I'm talking with Terry Castle, who teaches English at Stanford and has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on Patricia Highsmith. It's a review of a new biography by Richard Bradford, an unsavoury new biography, as she puts it. And we'll be talking a bit about that, but also about Highsmith's life and work more generally. Hello, Terry, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, Tom. Thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast. So if we begin with Bradford's biography maybe to get it out of the way, so to speak. And you say that he, he approaches Highsmith's life with what might politely be called a hermeneutics of suspicion, sort of convinced that she made up a lot of the people in her diaries, her girlfriends especially, and that they were her first fictional characters. And at the same time, he reads her novels as disguised biography, sort of getting the fiction and the life back to front. But I was wondering, is there, was there a more productive way to look at the relationship between between her life and her work because having read your piece then going back to the talented Mr Ripley I find it quite hard not to see the ways in which Ripley's a kind of self-portrait. Oh well yes Uh, and he is and I overstated the issue to some degree but it is true that Bradford doesn't seem to be able to modulate this dynamic very well. And I've read a lot of the journals and her writing diaries that are in the literary archive in Switzerland. And you see that, yes, she did use her cahier, as she called them, to write little story ideas and indeed little prices of things. But it's very clear what has happened to her and what the fictional rendering of it is. And he seems to think that it was all a big, strange psycho muddle for her. For instance, in the case of The Price of Salt, she had the experience of she was working in Bloomingdale's in New York and actually met the woman uh, who became the model for Carol. And she herself was in the position of the character of Therese. She was the, the clerk in the department store. And the woman came in and Highsmith was sort of smitten with her at first sight Uh, And the woman then disappeared forever. But Highsmith, as soon as she got home from the department store, began writing in her diary. First, she wrote up what had happened. And then there's an eight-page 
draft of sort of recasting the meeting between them. And then she obviously is going to take the story into a complete kind of wish fulfillment zone, diverging from the reality of the event. But it's quite clear what's what. And I don't see the same ambiguity that that Bradford sees. I think one thing about his his tendency to sort of invest all of her or well many of her lesbian relationships with a kind of fantasy content is a way of derealizing the lesbianism of her sort of erotic life, if you like. So I was bothered by how many times it happened because it seemed it seemed like a tick with him. You know, you read her diaries and to me they're not they don't seem unbelievable at all. Quite the contrary. I don't think she's making any of this up. She was a very active person, uh, sexually speaking, and a kind of female Don Juan. But, you know, there are such people. And um, she was uh, she was very driven by her sexuality more than a lot of people are, certainly a lot of, more than a lot of women are. But as you say on Ripley, I mean, she didn't say Ripley, say moi, but she might as well have said that. Um, and her identification with him was very, very strong in the sense of the estrangement that she shared with him. I mean, he's he is strange in and of himself as a character, but he's also estranged from everyone around him. And I think that was a direct transcription of her own existential state, if you like, her own sense of herself in social relation to other people. And then the the testing of the boundaries. And he, of course, just in the end, lets go of any inhibition. And that's her great subject that she's fascinated by, how that happens. And so I think she does use him to explore, to some degree, her own aggression, her own desire, uh, her own, paradoxically, her wish to be more connected to people. I think she often may have wished to have been a gay man. And that's something you see here and there in the lesbian world. And her identification with gay men was was profound. And I think it's something that hasn't really been examined too fully yet by anyone. But all the way from, well, the Ripley character, but all the way through to people like Ronald Blythe, who became her good friend when she was living in England in Suffolk in the 60s, and then people she knew in Switzerland and so on. So there's a thread there. I think she envied the 
well, closeted but intense sociability of uh, of the gay male networks, uh, which were reproduced in some degree in places like Manhattan with lesbian networks, but never obviously to the same degree. And I think she was drawn to the idea of a sort of the casual hookup, and that was much, much easier for men than for women. But possibly easier for her than for Ripley, yeah. because Ripley doesn't. He has difficulty acknowledging his sexuality, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose something else about them is when he's Ripley's writing the letters to Dickie Greenleaf's father and finds himself making up stories. He has this astonishing facility for making up stories, and he's most comfortable when he when he's lying. And if he finds himself telling the truth by mistake, <laughs> he feels slightly sick about it. Yes. Did she did she write in that sort of way? Do you think is that as you described the the beginning of the what became the beginning of the price of salt in her and this yes imagining the encounter and did she write in that very easy way that he does or is that is that a kind of fantasy as well well i think she had an extraordinary access to her own fantasies and her own narratives and her own ability to make a narrative out of something i mean in the case of the price of salt it really does seem that she wanted almost to bring into being somehow an alternative story. Once she had the beginning, she wanted to see this woman again. And to the point that she found her address, uh, I'm talking about the real woman, whose name was Kathleen Sen, Kathleen Sen, S-E-N-N, she had her address from the COD slip that the woman had filled out at the counter when she was buying a toy. And uh, Highsmith went to New Jersey twice and kind of hid in the bushes near her house just like the guy in um, The Cry of the Owl at the beginning, stalking her, basically, and doing a whole kind of peeping pat routine. So she wanted there to be a story, and I think it was just, it was there for her. She was ready for this to happen, and it didn't, so she she started writing the same day that she met the woman, that evening. And it actually links up. I've been editing The Price of Salt for Norton. And you read along. She met her right before Christmas in 1948. And the story in The Price of Salt takes up about maybe six months or so. And you can see at the beginning, it's as if Highsmith is writing the story in real time, uh, as it were, that um, it's February all of a sudden. And yes, it really is February. <laughs> so so I, I know she had a calendar, I think. I think she had a calendar uh, above her writing desk. And uh, the dates and the timeline in the novel are very intricately worked out and stay in 
strangely half in and half out of a kind of real world framework at the same time. She also, she did things that no one would notice except someone like me who decided to work it all out. But she actually has Carol and Therese, uh, once they decide to go on this cross-country trip, which in the film version is not given very much airtime, but it's a major, major part of the novel. They they drive all the way across the United States, almost, almost to Reno. But she has them leave Carol's house on January 19th, and you can work it out. She doesn't ever give the date, but you can work it out by what she says, well, three days after we did such and such, blah, blah. Uh, She has the two women leave on her own birthday. Highsmith Highsmith had her centenary on January 19th, just this this year, uh, 21. She was born in 1921, and uh, she has them leaving on January the 19th. Um, So she kept projecting herself into the story and anchoring it with a kind of private symbolism, I think. But it's not it's it's not as simple as anything I think that Bradford sees. And at the same time that she published it under a pseudonym, so that's an extra yes. level of remove. And and also, is there a, is there a sense in which the pseudonym was a fictional character, or is that being too too Bradford like to see Claire Morgan? Is that right? As a kind of yes, is it just a name, or or was was she? writing as someone else, as it were. My opinion on this, I mean, nobody knows, of course, but my opinion is that she didn't use it as another person, like a persona, like Nabokov with Humbert, Humbert or something. But uh, she chose the name uh, Claire Morgan she said, well, one of them was the name of the mother of one of her girlfriends, and the other name, the last name or whichever, was somebody she knew. And she chose the name simply to be as neutral as it could possibly be, and quote-unquote normal-sounding, uh, a bit what like what Fielding does in... Tom Jones, (laughs) but to have a kind of generic sounding name, I'm not saying your name is generic. No, that's fine. It really is the most generic name. That's that's really fine. (laughs) So, but, you know, novelists always have an immediate creative dilemma when it comes to naming characters. Do you want the name of the character, to evoke something allegorical or symbolic. and um, But I think as far as the pseudonym went, she just wanted a placeholder. And I think she was very much, it was she and her agent who basically figured out how they were going to get this thing published. And uh, the pseudonym was the only way to do it, really, to do it without risk, truly risking her career, I think, in 1952, 
So she decided uh, to do this. But I think she was also thinking of the kinds of pseudonyms that writers used in the realm of pulp fiction, uh, sort of American paperback pulp fiction market was very developed by the early 50s. And there were a number of people, including one of Highsmith's own girlfriends, Mary Jane Meeker, who wrote uh, all kinds of cheap paperbacks on lots of different subjects under a whole group of different pseudonyms. So a little bit like, I think mystery writers are very prone to this in particular. And sometimes a writer will even say, well, here's my, this particular pseudonym I use for this kind of thing. I believe Ruth Rendell as a person who famously does this or did this with Barbara Vine, which is one of her pseudonyms that she uses sometimes. And I think I remember reading somewhere, she said, well, these are my more dreamy and um, dreamlike um, <laughs> mysteries, but they're all horrible, uh, it seems to me. I mean, horrible in the sense of scary and grim and weird. So I uh, can't really tell the difference. But Highsmith almost did the opposite of that, didn't she? Because she published her crime novels under her own name. Yes. So sort of the opposite of what um, John Banville or, or um, Julian Barnes does writing crime fiction under a pseudonym, that she published her crime novels under her... Real name. Under her own name and then published her... Yes, though, when you say her real name, her name when she was a child... Well, everybody called her Patsy, uh, which is kind of hard to wrap one's head around. But uh, And she went for some years, by her real father, her biological father's name, which was Plangman, a German name. So she was Patsy Plangman. She positively loathed her stepfather, Stanley Highsmith, who seems a fairly inoffensive sort of being. I guess his great uh, flaw was that he sort of ran off with her mother, thus subjecting her to misery for the rest of her life by doing that. So Patricia Highsmith, she, you know, she did comment on the name Highsmith now and then and seem not to be especially attached to it or feel it was somehow carried her noumena within it or something. Uh, she was she was kind of detached. A lot of things she just didn't worry about and didn't charge with the kind of narcissistic meaning one would think she might. She, yeah, she was very locked inside herself, but she did not have to my mind, what I would call a narcissistic personality. I mean, she was weird, ultra, ultra strange. There were things about being well-known and a celebrity of sorts that she did not particularly 
respond to. Uh, it may be because she became a celebrity in her 20s. She's she very young. So her first book, Strangers on a Train, was very, very successful, obviously. I mean, Hitchcock started making his film version while she was still out promoting the book. Um, <laughs> she got a phone call from him, if one could imagine. She was 27 or 28 then. And she just went on from there and had a, a large following for the rest of her life. So I think she she was blasé after a while about it. The, the Price of Salt, she didn't publish under the same name as her other novels. And she kept it that way. And that and you say that it was a, because of the possible risks to her career. So despite the massive success of Strangers on a Train, it was still a risk. And just because you mentioned Humbert Humbert earlier, that the, the idea that Lolita, which came out, what, two or three years later, that after, after the price of salt, and again the road trip across America, a different, very different kind of unorthodox relationship. But Nab- Nabokov never had any worries about what effect that might have on his career. No, and it just occurs to me the sort of the, the double standards between the idea that the price of salt was, was somehow a, a riskier novel to write than Lolita seems. Well, it does seem a bit odd to us now, but um, I don't know. It's always homosexuality is always worse than heterosexuality, even if you're a pedophile, it seems. And um, that novel is, well, I don't want to get into Lolita too much, but um, it is, but it still has many things about it that are sort of oddly conventional in the love story. There's nothing apart from the age difference that makes it a kind of stigmatized relationship. But I, I'm going to get in trouble if I go on in this way. Yeah, this we, we way. don't need to go on to so, <laughs> I'm going to get cancelled. So I think that The Price of Sultan, is, is that fair to say it's her only non-crime novel? Is it a, or, is, or is that a sort of reductive of everything she wrote to say she was... It, well... In some sense, yes, and in some sense, no, as always with Highsmith. It is a crime novel of a sort in that when this cross-country journey takes place, they realize, the two women realize at a certain point that they're being followed by a detective who has been put on their trail by Carol's husband, who knows something is up. And she's married and very unhappily married and will ultimately divorce him. She's in the middle of trying to divorce him, but she doesn't want to lose her daughter, who is, I think, eight years old. And the husband is distraught over the marriage breaking up and has decided he wants to hurt her by obtaining custody of the daughter and he wants to destroy her reputation and she's a, a kind of New Jersey 
socialite, the character in in the book. And so she has a lot to lose. The detective is following them from a sort of cheap motel to cheap motel. And they keep trying to lose him, but then he turns up again. And during those moments, you feel the novel has morphed into a kind of pursuit narrative that is very close to the kinds of things you see in some of the Ripley novels and some of the other uh, suspense fiction, where someone uh, does something and then realizes that he, usually he, is being pursued by someone who knows about it, and one is now being stalked. You start off, you're stalking somebody else, and then lo and behold, somebody else is stalking you in Highsmith. And so the position of pursuer and the pursued is always switching around. But that's one of the things that I think actually in the Bokoff, I don't know, I still have never found proof of this, but uh, it it does make one thing was Quilty uh, borrowing from Highsmith, uh, this detective that follows you as you're driving around the United States in this otherwise somewhat aimless way, <laughs> because there's no place for you. There's no place for you to go, finally. Yeah, so I would say uh, The Price of Salt is on the same continuum, in a way, with the, the crime fiction per se. It, it isn't yeah. labeled as such, usually. But, uh, you know, in the early 50s, lesbianism was not illegal, per se, in the United States. It was ignored as far as the law went, unlike male homosexuality. But you could still be arrested, say, for particularly wearing men's clothing or anything that was remotely male, like, for instance, trousers. Uh, So if the police conducted a raid on a lesbian bar and you were in there wearing trousers, you would be arrested. Um, But what was the the alleged crime? I mean, what what was the pretext for arresting a woman? Crime was wearing inappropriate clothing. Oh, wow. Which, if you went to my high school in the late 1960s, the same laws applied. I mean, if you were a girl, you wore a skirt or a dress. I mean, I think this is something that is very hard for younger people to comprehend these days. The extraordinarily oppressive situation in which lesbians and gay men obviously lived until really the 1980s. And I feel like I I know this because I lived it. I lived these decades, born in the 50s, and uh, lived through the beginnings of sort of the feminist movement and gay liberation, so-called, and so on. But it was extraordinary, both the silence that surrounded the issue and the very 
intense and pervasive discrimination that was there. And Highsmith was absolutely tormented by it, as you know, as were a lot of men of the time. And it's when you look back at the people who sort of came out in that era, like Truman Capote, say, or Gore Vidal, sort of, and there are a few women too, you think, good Lord, those people were brave. They were extraordinary. I mean, Capote, I mean, you look at him on the on television and <laughs> Dick Cavett show or something, and there he is. And same was true with James Baldwin. Just did not make a fuss about it, but taking enormous risks. So people have forgotten this. Yeah. And of course, that's also, I mean, that's the context in which Ripley can't acknowledged his feelings about Dickie Greenleaf. That's the society that he lives in. And so, of course... You know. Yes, it's crippling. It's paralysing. And it, it warps the sensibility in some way. And, you know, I think, in a sense, you know, Highsmith is aware of that, that homosexuality does, in some sense lead at times to a kind of mental illness, but it comes from outside this social pressure. I, I know I'm sounding all R.D. Lang-ish, and I don't mean to, but, um, you know, gay people are often very screwed up. And this was really true in an earlier era and uh, you just don't get over this kind of wounding and scarring of the sort that obtained for so long. I mean, you see something similar in Britain with gay men in the aftermath of the wild trial, the wild scandal. I mean, it takes a very long time for somebody like Joe Orton to appear in the meantime, you have poor E.M. Forster absolutely mortified and terrified, and he doesn't dare sleep with anybody till he's, what, 35 or something. And that sense of the hostility that you would attract or will attract was so profound and it was crippling to people. And it's extraordinary the speed with which certain things have changed. When I think about, say, the 20th century as a span of historical time. And again, you know, Highsmith is, lives from the 20s into the 90s. And so she, too, was part of an extraordinary historical transformation with regard not simply to homosexuality, but to sexuality in general. People did not talk about this <laughs> until just a few decades ago. It seems like only yesterday. No, I mean, the, um, the thing that I think was one of the most historic 
changes of human history, which we are still living with and we still don't understand its ramifications at all, is the invention of a viable birth control. The social and political and economic ramifications of the invention of birth control are just mind-blowing once you begin to think about it. The whole so-called sexual revolution and indeed the liberating of alternative sexualities of all kinds, all of these things are related, I think, to that fundamental transformation in the position of women and uh, female reproduction. And the separation of sex from reproduction. Absolutely, yes, for women and for men relating to women, yeah. And can you see that transformation, to drag the discussion back to Highsmith, through her novels, can you see the way that her writing changes, the differences between her novels of the 50s and her books of the 80s, or is that not far enough on? Well, um... My own sense is that she was one of these people who didn't so much develop. Uh, She's more like an outsider artist in some ways, in that she had her style there from the beginning. And one thing I always notice about her writing stylistically is there's a kind of flatness to it. Now, it's true when you read her novels of the 50s, they can seem very dated in a way, the way people talk, the way people do things. But the flatness is always there. And it is her mode. It's her way of representing the world and human experience and human contact. And I don't, I myself don't see any huge change in her, I don't know, the, the kind of subliminal factors that are directing her at any point. I mean, some of the novels are slightly different. And I guess, you know, one thing I didn't have a chance to talk about in my piece at all is her short fiction. She does become more and more macabre, in a sense, in her short stories and her stories about animals in particular, and the like. She just, she lets her imagination go in a way that is, well, I've always connected it with with Gary Larson's uh, cartoon series in the U.S., The Far Side, where animals are always doing sort of uh, kind of horrific things to human beings. It's a real world upside down where the animals take their revenge on us. And she allowed herself, I think, more freedom in her short stories just to come up with a scenario that you read, you know, a three-page story and you get to the end. I mean, my favorite short story of hers has always been one called 
two disagreeable pigeons. And it's about two pigeons who live in Trafalgar Square, and they're actually married, I think, or at least living together. (laughs) And um, they're arguing, and they bicker about this thing and that thing and have a huge fight. And uh, I may be misremembering some of this, but I cannot forget the ending. They sort of reconcile because they see a baby in a carriage, uh, a perambulator, and the mother has turned away for a moment. And so they dive in and peck the baby's eyes. (laughs) It's just, you you think, oh, Pat, where did you get this from? (laughs) But it... Something no pigeon has ever done. Yeah, yeah. well, it goes back to a whole kind of, I don't know, almost folk culture of animals that she taps into where they're just like we are, ravenous and predatory. Yeah, the Parliament of Fowls, that kind of... Yeah, exactly. Also Hitchcock, Hitchcock the birds. Yes, the birds, absolutely. And did she ever write about her snails? Uh, She did. She did. There's a short story, I think, called The Snail Lover, but I can't drum it up. You know, a lot of Highsmith, there's a lot that she wrote, and she wrote many, many, many short stories. And I have read a lot of Highsmith, but I read a lot of it quite a long time ago and haven't necessarily reread it unless I was writing something about it. So I can't remember what happens in The Snail Lover. And she also, in sort of shorter pieces, she wrote two pieces for the LRB. Did she? 1984. Yeah, and one of them, the first one was a review of Gordon Burns' book about Peter Sutcliffe, about the so-called Yorkshire Yorkshire Ripper. Ripper, Yeah, and again, it's written in that very sort of flat style. It's this very matter-of-fact sort of account of this very mundane life and horrific climate. Or dissociated. There's a kind of dissociation that one feels coming from her on the page. Which you have to have writing about. I mean, it's quite it's quite hard to read because it, you know, yeah, it's kind of it's real, not yes, right, yes, it's real, not made up. But when um someone who reread it after Sutcliffe died, and then they sort of wondered if in the um in our archive it had got sort of we hadn't published the whole thing because it has this oh, it ends by talk, it's talking about Sutcliffe's wife and how she covered up for him yes, and just has this last sentence which is. On such and such a night, she and Peter were home together, she said, because they were always home together evenings. This was not always true, as Peter sometimes rang up to say he was delayed on the road. Yes. And that's how the piece ends. Uh, Yes, yes. That's interesting. You know, I I spent some time uh, a few summers ago looking at the archive of Highsmith at the Swiss Literary Archive. And they have her library, her own personal library that she had at the end of her life. And they have all the books and they've put it in a special sort of refrigerated storage place in the exact order that she had everything. And I must have spent hours in there. It was freezing cold. But um, anyway, she had, you know, a whole shelf about Jack the Ripper and a lot of magazines about 
serial killers and all kinds of things. And she was, you know, fantastically conversant with all of them. And uh, so I'm not surprised that that would have been the assignment she received. And the other, the other one was about Simonon and his so got intimate memoirs, which also included the writings by his daughter who killed herself when she was 25. And they were thought this book implied an incestuous relationship between Simonon and Marie-Jo. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Which again, from what you know, you say about um, about Highsmith's relationship with her birth father. And, yes. But again, she writes, you know, that it's a very sort of mash of, yeah, I get this flat, slightly dissociated style. Yes. And again, writing about, to, to read her writing about another very famous writer, prolific writer of crime fiction who worked with Hitchcock. And But again, she doesn't put herself, what you're saying about her lack of narcissism. Mm. It's a very sort of straightforward mm. piece about very straightforward book review somehow in this slightly Yes. I don't think writing was enormously difficult for her. She wrote a book in I think 1961 about the title is something like writing suspense fiction or inventing and writing. And it's a great book uh especially if you are a neurotic writer <laughs> because she is so businesslike and the advice she gives is just so you read it and you think oh of course that's that's just what i should do um uh and um it's a wonderfully reassuring book and a kind of normal book she had her demons, but for instance, I feel like they're not exactly the same as my demons. <laughs> and in fact, she didn't have mine at all. Uh, so uh, it's a book that's very much worth looking at. Bradford maligns it in his biography and says, oh, it's such a lie because she denies any autobiographical content in the writing of uh, suspense fiction and or indeed any fiction. And yes, he may be right. But that's almost a sort of rhetorical, you know, it's what everyone everyone says. And of course, every novelist denies the autobiography as well. It's sort of it's it's a throat clearing. Is what you is what one does. Yes, I don't know. It's like my students with Freud. Um, they <laughs> they don't believe it. They don't believe in the unconscious when you really <laughs> test them on it. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So I have sort of references to other writers that again. There's a bit that, that in the book the beginning of The Talent of Mr. Ripley, where Dickie Greenleaf's father asks him if he's read The Ambassadors, yes. because obviously the plot someone going is to Europe... A... Yeah, the plot is obviously... Um, and he tries to find it on the transatlantic liner and there isn't a copy in the first-class cabin, in the first-class library. And he tries to go to the cabin-class library and they won't let him take it out because he has a first-class ticket. And that's sort of <laughs> wonderful moment of frustration. But her... And it's obviously it's a sort of joke about the plot and her acknowledging that. And obviously, in a sense, she could hardly be a more different writer from James. Yeah. But I don't know this idea, this sort of the idea of the sort of the most that sort of literary writing and crime writing and those distinctions, which she and if she sort of if there is some sort of comment there about not being pigeonholed or well, I think 
probably with James, um, she must. I I would love to know what she thought of the turn of the screw and some of the other sort of quasi supernatural tales that James wrote. I'm sure she would have been very interested in that aspect of his writing, but I'm sure she read all of him too. You know, her she was from Texas and she was from a very working class background, at least on her mother's side, especially. And they were all sort of evangelical Christians and so on, uh, fundamentalist types. And one can see her feeling maybe an intense kind of class difference between herself and somebody like James. And she's not in the same world, but she knows what his world is. I think the the link between them would have been the closet um, and that she would have been very aware, because people always were aware, that there was something about James's depiction of relationships that made one think about same-sex relationships, and she would have been drawn to him in that way. It's interesting that Ripley, I had forgotten that, that he can't get a hold of the book as he doesn't have a first-class ticket. Well, no, it's the other way round. He does have a first-class ticket, but James James is in the cabin-class library. So there's this kind of reversal. Oh, gosh. Okay, so it's a complete twist. I'm sure she did all that on purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, their writing is nothing alike, except in its, it's funny to say this of James, but its directness, the ultimate, absolute, unafraid gaze at something human and often objectionable, the complete lack of sentimentality. It's there in James, and it's there in Highsmith. And for both of them, it did involve a conscious leaving of the United States, and living in England, and living in Paris, and living, you know, here and there, uh, Rome, Henry James riding his horse and the Campania, etc. So, so there are actually very interesting links between them that have to do with being born as an American writer and feeling uh, American culture to be not rewarding in some sense to one's imagination and having to go back into an old, contorted, yet richer and more beautiful scene of life. So, yeah, I I, I think she would have had a considerable fellow feeling for James. And the ambassadors, I mean, it's brilliant, the, the transformation. A lot of people have... Uh, written about it and talked about it, the parallel that she sets up uh, there. Terry Castle, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. You can read Terry Castle's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Rosemary Hill on London's West End, 
and Colm Tabeen on Francis Bacon. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.